Well, good morning. It's an honor to be with you, and I said this in the first service, and I want to say it in front of Daniel's family and wife. Um, Daniel's the kind of guy that makes me want to love Jesus more. And uh, they had us in their home last night, and uh, he's the kind of, being around him makes me want to be a better dad, a better husband. Thank you for loving God. And he loves you the way he talks about you. Um, I, I don't, you don't need me to tell you you're blessed to have a, a wonderful pastor. I'm going to do something a little different today in that I'm not going to necessarily talk from the Bible about what you should believe, but rather I'm going to talk about why you should believe the Bible. Not that you need me to tell you that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have reasons of your own. But just know at some point in life, either the demands of life or, or the questions of your unbelieving friends and coworkers are going to force you to come up with an answer for why you believe this book. You, if you're a Christian, are largely basing the way you live off of ancient words of years ago. I, Thursday of this last week, drove down to Louisville, Kentucky from Ohio, um, where a, a dear friend, um, I attended his funeral visitation. And he died at the age of 60 after a very short battle with aggressive brain cancer. And Mark um, lived his life. He was, ran IT for a large hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. He lived his life based on what's written in this book. Ancient words written in different languages thousands of years ago. He married his wife largely based on values that are informed by ancient words written in different languages thousands of years ago. Why would anyone do that? Well, I want to talk to you about reasons I believe the Bible. Not because my reasons are, are better than any reasons you might come up with, but um, I want to illustrate for you that we all have to give an answer for why I believe, why you believe what you do. And what I want to do is give you an overview of five reasons I believe the Bible. This is informed by my life as a Christian. This is informed by my ministry at Cedarville University, where I get to be a part of a university with 4,000 liberal arts students, the vast majority of them going into various vocations outside of Christian ministry, out of engineering. And I love it. I get to teach theology classes where no, nobody in the class is going to be a pastor. And it's actually a lot of fun to, you know, to have a a um, pre-med student who's thinking through how can I live out my theology and my love for God. I require my students to write why papers. Um, so they have to write a paper called Why I Believe the Bible. They have to write a paper, Why I Believe in God. And they have to write a paper on uh, what they believe about creation called What Does It Mean to Be Human? And I think it's important that we all think through these questions because um, God's called us to love Him with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul, and He's also called us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Well, if our neighbor asks us why we believe the Bible, or if our neighbor looks at us and thinks we're nuts, because, you know, every week we gather to read words written in different languages thousands of years ago, doesn't it sound a bit absurd? But for those of us who've experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel, it's not absurd at all. So if we're going to love our neighbors well, we're going to have to be prepared to give them an answer, even if we don't have questions of our own. But I guarantee you, at some point, you will have questions of your own. And if you, maybe if you're a follower of Jesus and you have some doubts this morning, I would just want to say to you, doubt isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
Um, doubt can propel you to further investigate why you believe what you do. I sometimes tell my students that doubts are a sign that they're taking their faith seriously. I get more worried about students who never have questions and never have doubts because sometimes apathy can be a greater threat than even serious questions. If the gospel's true, then it can stand up to your questions. It's not a fragile heirloom you have to pack away in bubble wrap so you could preserve it for future generations. As Charles Spurgeon once said, it's, it's more like a, a lion. Spurgeon said, lion, uh, he's never seen a, a lion that has to be defended. Just set it loose, it'll defend itself. And so whether you're looking at this talk today thinking, I don't believe these ancient words written in different languages thousands of years ago, I want to invite you to consider it. It's the best-selling book in all of human history. It's the most influential piece of literature. Even if you don't believe in God, you should at least consider why you don't. And you should have an informed opinion about this book. It's so influential um, throughout the world. If you're a Christian, I hope this is an encouragement to you. So here are my five reasons. First reason, I believe the Bible because I'm a Christian. Now, anytime I present this in a venue where it's not like Bible-believing Christians, I could always kind of hear like the collective sigh or eye rolling um, because it's like, well, of course you would say that. You know, we expected you to say that. Christians are like, why did you have to lead with that? Well, I'm leading with that because I'm trying to be honest. I believe the Bible because God gave me eyes to believe it. Uh, that's what Christians call conversion. It's when the Spirit of God works in someone's heart to allow them to see the significance and truthfulness and, and beauty of God and His revelation of Himself. Not only has God given me eyes to, to see it, and if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, but as I read Scripture, it, it convinces me of its truthfulness. And so that's what theologians refer to as the, the Bible attesting to its own truthfulness. Now, these are the kind of things that don't convince anyone. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't expect you to find that overly compelling. But I will say this, if you ever experience it, there will be no counter-argument that can refute it. So on the outside, looking in, it sounds absurd, but if you ever experience it for yourself, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. As you read Scripture and the Spirit of God attests to its own truthfulness. Now, when I speak about this, I always have people who, who are like, you know, I knew it. Christians are in a, they're in a position of weakness. We just concede the higher ground to other alternative worldviews. Our secular counterparts, they get facts and science. We get ancient words written in another language thousands of years no matter what they call themselves, agnostic, deist, atheist, an Eastern religion, whatever, every person, when they appeal to something as ultimate authority, they're going to assume its authority to make a case for it. If you were to talk to someone who is a rationalist, for example, that's not a real common term people use to describe themselves today, but if you were to talk to someone who, who was a self-identified rationalist, that's someone who doesn't believe that God's revealed himself, the human reason is the highest authority. Um, think about the enlightenment. If you were to talk to a rationalist and say, why are you a rationalist? They're going to give you a rational argument to defend their rationalism. They're going to go into their Bible and give you chapter and verse, as it were. If you were to talk to an atheist, why do you believe God doesn't exist? They might say something like what Carl Sagan, a famous skeptic, said years ago, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. 
I don't believe in God because I believe all that exists is a material universe. Can you prove that? That there is nothing that preceded the cosmos? That there's nothing other than our universe? That there will never be anything other than our universe? No, you can't. It's a faith commitment. I always like to illustrate this with a, a story that James Sire, who's a Christian philosopher, tells in his book appropriately, appropriately named Naming the Elephant. It's a great book if you're looking for something to read kind of related to these topics. He was a philosopher. He tells the story of his, his son who comes home from school a bit, um, a bit concerned about what he learned at school that day. His, uh, his dad notices his concern and says to him, you know, what's the matter, son? And his son tells him, he says, Dad, my, my teacher told me that uh, the earth isn't sitting on top of anything. And that can't be right. Because everything sits on top of something. If you kick a ball in the air, it comes back down. If you jump off of a wall, you fall on the ground. Everything has to be on something. He reasoned from all of his life experience, the sum total of his, you know, 10 years of experience or whatever. Everything operates this way. And his dad wanted to have a little fun with him, so he did what dads do when they want to have a little fun with their kids. He lied to him. And so he Santa Claus... The Easter what, tooth fairy? How creepy was that? <laughs> Somebody sneaks in your room and takes your bloody tooth and leaves you a dime or a quarter or whatever you get these days. So anyways, he says to him, son, the earth is sitting on top of something. It's on the back of a turtle. That's how it gets around the sun, and, uh, which apparently isn't sitting on anything, but nonetheless... And so he tells him that, and the boy's thrilled because his teacher's wrong. He's validated, and the earth is on the back of a turtle. This is, and uh, he comes back in shortly thereafter, and he says to his dad, what's the turtle on? <laughs> and his dad said, well, it's on the back of a giraffe. And uh, so he runs away again, comes back a little bit quicker, and he says, wait a minute. What's the giraffe on? And his dad, thinking of the biggest animal that came to mind, he said, well, it's on the back of an elephant. And his son doesn't look convinced. He walks out of the room. He immediately turns around and comes back in. He says, but dad, what is the elephant on? And his, his dad said, well, son, it is just elephant all the way down. <laughs> and you can tell he didn't answer his question. And uh, James Sire tells that story to illustrate this point. Everyone has an elephant. <laughs> If you keep asking the why question, you're going to hit what we might call pay dirt. You're going to hit that point at which they'll say, this is just something I accept by faith. I don't have an argument for it. I don't have evidence for it. I accept that this is how it is, and that's how I make sense of everything else. I'll give you a couple examples. This is of atheists who will admit this. This is Richard Lewinton, a Harvard University professor. He's writing a book review of a Carl Sagan book, another famous skeptic. And in it, I won't read the whole quote, but I have a couple of things underlined. He admits that and all that exists is a material world, um, the philosophy of materialism, that there's just a material world, there's nothing outside of it, there's no supernatural. He admits that we have a prior commitment to materialism. In other words, we conclude before we do science, we conclude there is no God. There's just a cosmos, as Sagan said, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. We make that conclusion apart from the research and evidence. We accept it 
as a commitment, an intellectual commitment. He goes on to say materialism, there is no God, there's just a material universe, is absolute. Why? We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That's his elephant. We are committed to a material universe. There's nothing outside of it. Now, I've, I've quoted a couple intellectuals. Um, if you were to, I wish I would have brought it with me, the Berenstein Bears Big Book of Nature says that nature is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Even in children's literature, you have, this, you have an elephant. And what I'm saying to you as a Christian, if you believe in God and believe in the Bible, that you're not in a position of weakness. You're in the same position that everyone is when they're trying to make sense of reality. We just have a commitment that God is real and that God exists and he's revealed himself. And so I believe the Bible because it's a part of a total way of seeing the world. I can't separate out my belief in God and my belief in Jesus and my belief in Scripture. Here's one more example. Crispin Sartwell, not too many years ago, a philosopher in Arizona, published this article with The Atlantic, a secular news outlet. The title of the article is Irrational Atheism. And in it, he admits that his atheism is not based on evidence or science. Okay, we're almost done with the sermon. I just went through all my slides. <laughs> Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, <laughs> There we go. <laughs> um, I, I'm a little bit trigger happy. Um, so in Irrational Atheism, Crispin Sartwell says this. I'll just read his quote. Atheism pictures the universe as a natural system, a system that's not guided by intelligent design, not traversed by spirits, a universe that can be explained by science because it consists of material objects operating according to physical laws. It's a really good summary of a basic secular view. There's just a material world. There is no God. However, as a philosopher, he knows that there's a deeper underlying commitment. That's why he admits, ironically, this is similar to the totalizing world view of religion. Neither can be shown to be true or false by science or indeed by, any say again, as an atheist. He says, whether theistic, that means belief in God, or atheistic, there is no God, they are all matters of faith. Stances taken up by tiny creatures in an infinitely rich environment. I have taken a leap of atheist faith, he says. The idea that the atheist comes to her view of the world through rationality and argumentation, while the believer relies on arbitrary emotional commitments, is false. That's his elephant. And he admits it. I've accepted by faith that there is no God. There's merely a material universe. Paul get, does something interesting with, with Timothy. If, if when asked, why do you believe the Bible, if you, said some, if you were tempted to say something like, well, my mama told me to believe the Bible. That's what John Piper said, Pastor John Piper, when he was asked at a conference. And he goes on to point out that this is a biblical argument, that if you've learned something from some, most of the things we learn, we learn by way of authority. There's so many things that we're not experts on, and we take on someone else's authority. And if you've learned from people you trust, and you've seen their life, and they've taught you the scriptures, this is a biblical argument. Paul says to Timothy, he gives him a practical argument than a theological one for why he should trust scripture. Here's the practical one. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Here's the theological argument, the practical one. You know who you learned it from, the theological one. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's the doctrine of inspiration, that God has breathed out scripture. I like to say it this way. I remember years ago, I heard a youth pastor um, at a camp stand up with teenagers and he said, let's take out our Bible. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. We're going to read it. And I remember sitting there thinking, nobody knows what he's talking about. And so I forced myself to kind of, when I use those terms, to give a really concise definition. So here, here it is. When I say the Bible's inspired, I mean God is its author. When I say the Bible's inerrant, that means without error, I mean that God used humans to write exactly what God wanted them to write without error. It's inerrant. And when I use the word infallible, the Bible is infallible, I mean that the Bible is a reflection of its author, of God himself. If God is perfect, his revelation of himself is perfect. If God cannot lie, his word also is incapable of error. It's inspired. God's its author. It's inerrant. God used humans to write exactly what he wanted them to write without error, and it's infallible. It's a reflection of God himself. So I believe the Bible because I'm a Christian. Second point, I believe the Bible because it's powerful. Not only have I experienced its powers, I read it through being converted and seeing its truthfulness, but also I've seen its work in other people's lives. Consider Rosaria Butterfield. She has a, a, a beautifully written book called The Secret Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. It would be worth your time to, to get and read. And Rosaria was a tenured literature professor at Syracuse University, a committed atheist. She had a committed monogamous um, lesbian partner who had lived with her for some time. They were committed to each other. And she was at the top of her game until, as a tenured literature professor, she decided to do a project on the Bible. So she started reading large sections of the Bible, just sitting for hours and reading Scripture she describes in her book how they had um, several people from the LGBT community that they knew over for dinner every week because people in that community often feel marginalized and alienated, and as you would imagine, which should be convicting to Christians. We should be inviting communities where people who are alienated are accepted, accepted. And so we love people and we are relational with people. And, and so Rosario says they had to find that community within you know their own group and how one time they had people over and she went back to the kitchen and her friend who was a transgender woman, a man who identifies, who was born biologically as a man and now identifies as a woman, her, her friend followed her back into the kitchen. Rosaria put her hand to open the refrigerator and she says that her friend placed a, a rather large hand on top of hers and said, Rosaria, I'm worried about you. And Rosaria said, I've been reading the Bible. And her friend responded, I know. And Rosaria said, what if it's true? To which her friend responded, it's all true. Her friend brought her a box later that week, I think, with commentaries from his previous life when he was a pastor. 
And now Rosaria, as she's reading the Bible, is also reading commentaries on the Bible from her friend. And as she was reading through Revelation, she took out his copy of John Calvin's commentary on Revelation. And he had written in the, the margin, be as a pastor. As she read scripture, it began to change her, and God eventually gave her eyes to see. Today, Rosaria is an outspoken Christian leader and a pastor's wife. The Bible's powerful. Again, if you're doubting this claim, I would just encourage you, this is a really influential book. You should have an informed opinion on it. To paraphrase Tim Keller, it's intellectually irresponsible to ignore Jesus and his teachings. He's just made too much of an influence. You should at least understand that which it is you're rejecting. And so here's my invitation. If you're watching this on live stream or you're here um, and you're, you're just not sold on this, I would just invite you to read Scripture. So would you consider read the Gospel of John? It's my favorite of the Gospels. The other three are very similar, and John's just like out on his own. He marches to his own beat, and I like that. And so read John's Gospel. Um, that'd be my encouragement. And maybe consider praying a prayer like this. God, I'm not even sure if you're real, but would you help me to understand? If you're real, would you help me to understand what I'm reading? If there is no God, and if these are just ancient words written in another language thousands of years ago, what do you have to fear? Now, that prayer is not a magical incantation. It will not turn you into a frog or a newt or a Christian. It's just saying, God, if you're there, help me to understand what I'm reading. The Bible makes this claim about itself. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a scary thought because somehow this book, inspired by God, while you're reading it, it is reading you, discerning between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isaiah says it this way, Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you were to study the history of the Christian church, you'll find that in every season, there's always someone who's going to challenge what the Bible says, and often they do so with good motives. They, they think to themselves, the Bible's so antiquated. It really is. It's from antiquity. It's so antiquated. It's so irrelevant. It's so countercultural. We have to save Christianity. And so we have to change the Bible or it's never going to survive. And I asked Pastor Daniel later, trust me, every heretic, it seems, at some point makes a claim they're going to save Christianity. You can't save Christianity. <laughs> it could save you. The amazing thing in every, in every season of the church is what inevitably happens. The heresy and the heretic die. It's cunning or to tamper with God's word. You're not God's editor God didn't send you a rough draft. He's not waiting with bated breath for your revisions. He went to press a long time ago. <laughs> if anything, you're like a publicist. And that's, we have an easy job. Look what Paul says. It's just by an open statement of the truth. We don't need your, your highly emotional opinion. Just tell us what the word says. What do you think about this or that? Well, can I tell you, I'm a follower of Jesus, and here's what his word says. I'm not trying to be a jerk. It condemns me too. 
It's stepping on your toes on this issue or that issue. Paul in Romans 1, where he talks about sexual identity issues, ends by saying, um, talking about how people are condemned for being disobedient to their parents, showing us that we're all in the same boat. It may not step on my toes the same place it does on yours, but trust me, it gets me too. We're all in the same place. And so what we have to do is just by an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. All right, third reason I believe the Bible. It just makes sense of the world. It makes sense of the world. I've taught worldview analysis, which is a class that you look at various, not world religions per se, I mean, that's involved, but you kind of look at bigger categories. So instead of looking at all the Eastern religions, you would look at kind of the basic categories of what's called Eastern pantheistic monism. Instead of looking at, you know, all the different variants of atheism, you just kind of look at one broad category. But as I've looked at worldviews and thought about different ways of making sense of the world, and I know that some of you, if you know this term, I know confirmation bias, and I'm a Christian, so I'm going to gravitate towards things that help build my case. I get all that. But over and over again, I find that the Bible just makes better sense of the world than alternative worldviews. I used to make my students read a book by Duke philosophy professor Alex Rosenberg. Came out maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And the title of the book is The Atheist Guide to Reality. The subtitle is Living Life Without Illusions. Alex Rosenberg, again, a Duke professor, is seeking to help people say, you know, if you're an atheist, you really need to get rid of kind of the baggage from your religious past. So here's how you can live life without illusions. I once had a, a student do a video of himself um, holding the book, and he said, here's the book my professor makes me read, and here's what I think of it, and he just chucked it. <laughs> and I love that because I, it made him think, and you know, you should understand the worldviews that you don't believe in. <laughs> you, should, you should get it, and if you're not a Christian, I'm inviting you to do that, and it's just helpful to know what other people think. And if we're going to love them well, we should be curious about why they believe what they do, right? And that'll help you in talking about why you believe what you do. And so Alex Rosenberg in his book says, we can only believe things that science can teach us. Again, because we live in a material world, that's all that exists. There's nothing outside of it. Nothing preceded it. Nothing will follow it. This is it. And science is how we figure it out. So throughout the book, he denies pretty much every human experience you can imagine and says they're illusions. The idea that you're a person, for example, he says in the book is an illusion. You're not a person. Personhood is illusory, he says. You are the sum total of your parts. There are billions of chemical reactions that will fire in your brain over your lifetime, and not one of them is you. Not one of them is in control. Not one of them is supervising the whole thing. The idea that you have personhood is false. The idea that you make meaningful decisions is also false, he says. Science can't account for the will that would allow you to make decisions. So what we have is a brain that tells you what to do, and you don't tell it what to do. You have no control in any meaningful way over what you do. And then he argues that moral distinctions are false, calling one thing good and another thing evil. He says science can't explain that. Science can't account for that. So we need to let go of that as an illusion. He says that we should adopt a worldview that he is known, or a philosophy that's known as nihilism. There's no ultimate meaning and purpose in life. There's no free will. There's no personhood. And there's no moral categories of good and evil. But he concludes the book by saying, but we should be nice nihilists. We should be nice. <laughs> now, it's interesting to me that he's written the book as a person, writing to other persons, urging them to make a decision 
and celebrating atheism as a virtuous way to live. Those are all values that are refuted by his book. The Bible has a way of making sense of the world that other worldviews simply can't. C.S. Lewis said it this way. At the end of his essay, his theology poetry, Lewis concludes by saying, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. The Bible has a way of making sense of good and evil, of the universal longing to know God. It makes sense of sorrow and suffering and loss and optimism and hope. Um, a, an article came out not long ago in Time Magazine called Optimism Bias, how humans are intrinsically optimistic even though we shouldn't be. I would argue that we're intrinsically optimistic because of a promise made in a garden that one day God would conquer evil. The Bible is a general rule. Adopt a worldview that's not big enough for you. The Bible can account for the human experience. I know I talked about this in the first... Have I talked about Jennifer Fulweiler in this one already? Okay, I'll tell that story real quick. Um, Jennifer Fulweiler has a really interesting book. She's a Catholic author, um, but she grew up as an atheist. The title of her book is Something Other Than God. Really well written. Um, but she describes how, as a, as a very committed um, atheist who grew up with skeptic parents, her dad made her read Carl Sagan, his book Cosmos, before she was 10 years old. So that was that kind of household. She evaluated every experience that she ever had. She never had an unevaluated experience, that, that kind of analytical person. And when she had her first child, she describes in her book, she was laying there holding her child, thinking about that experience, and thought, well, what exactly is this that I'm, this powerful experience? And she thought, you know, on her atheism, that this child is basically a random collection of atoms. And that her love for the child is chemical reactions in her brain and evolutionary impulses to reproduce herself. And she said it hit her there in that moment like a ton of bricks. That's not true. That is not true. The Bible, I think, gives a beautiful depiction of what it feels like to be human. It gives real categories for what we experience every day. Fastest clicker in the north. <laughs> All right, so the fourth reason I believe the Bible is because there's a lot of evidence. And I'll move quickly here, but this is always the point at which some of my students are like, finally, you're going to talk about something external. Um, but I just want to be honest, the, the evidence didn't produce my faith. God produced my faith. But the evidence is powerful, and there's a lot of it, and I have to move so quick, but here we go. Um, the first thing, Gary Habermas points out that a professor from Western Michigan University, I didn't even do that on purpose, but here I am in Michigan being all contextual with you. All right, so this professor points out that many events from the ancient world are established with one single source. That's, that's not the kind of thing that's highly controversial. It's just well-known. This is a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. It's really well-written and, well and very interesting, written by a guy named Stephen Greenblatt about how a discovery of a manuscript that had been lost for over a 1,000 years ushered in the modern era. It's called The Swerve. It's about this guy here, Poggio, 
Poggio went in and found a copy of an ancient poem that had been forgotten and sent it to his buddy Niccolo de Nicolai. And his buddy did what buddies do when they get a borrowed book. He lost it. But before he lost it, he's the, his buddy was the inventor of the Italic script. Um, before he lost it, he made a beautiful handwritten copy of it. So what we have is not what Poggio discovered, but a copy of it. Um, and it is, was enough, as Stephen Greenblatt says, the single copy of a lost poem revived and undergirded. <laughs> it revived and undergirded. I always tell my students, by the end of the day, you just, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. And so I've, I've done this once today. It, this single copy ushered in modernity. And it was, before it was lost, still a thousand year plus old copy. How does the New Testament do? Well, I like to illustrate it this way with a painting from Rembrandt. Just by way of comparison, this was painted by Rembrandt in 1653. It depicts three people, two of them you could clearly see on the screen, one of which is rather hidden. The first is Aristotle. He's the guy standing there with his hand on his side and one hand on a statue, the statues of Homer. And some of you are thinking, well, where's the third person? And so I'll tell you where the third person is. He's right here. This is a locket. And if you could zoom in on it, this is the most celebrated piece of artwork at the Met in New York City, by the way. Um, it's a famous painting. Um, that gold sash and the locket depict Arist um, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was Aristotle's most famous student. And um, I, I, just really quickly, let's consider how does the New Testament relate to these three historical figures. First, after Alexander the Great's death and all of his powerful, impressive military conquest, there were some histories written about him, but they're all lost. We don't have them. We have some references to earlier things, but we don't have them. Our most reliable histories of Alexander the Great are written hundreds of years after the events, the events that they were describing. In fact, the most influential one was written 400 years after Alexander's death. Aristotle. Aristotle's writings are taught at universities around the world. His writing on on rhetoric and on logic. Um, Aristotle is a foundational philosophical figure. Our earliest copy from Aristotle is over 1,200 years after Aristotle died. That's as close to Aristotle's original writing that we could get. The third person in the painting is Homer. Homer's in a different league altogether. Homer was thought to be a blind poet. Um, we have more literary evidence for Homer than any other writing from the ancient world, with the exception of the New Testament. Homer composed his epic poetry around the 8th century. It wasn't written down. He didn't write it down, prayed in plays. It was acted out. It wasn't until 200 years later that it was actually written down. But we don't have copies of that. The earliest copy we have wouldn't be for another 300 years. So our oldest copy of Homer's writing, there's about a 500-year gap between when Homer composed it and our first copy. There's about a 1,000 copies in existence today. It depends who you read. Some people will put that number closer to 700. I found one source that put it as high as 2,000, but most of them are either at or under 1,000, about 1,000 ancient copies of Homer's writings. So that's the comparison. How's the New Testament do? Well, first, there are New Testament manuscripts that get way closer to the original. Homer's got a 500-year gap. There are New Testament manuscripts. Here's the oldest. 
That's it on display on the left. That's a, a close-up of it. Next to it, that's called P-52. It's papyrus. It's the 52nd piece of papyrus they found from New Testament manuscripts, about the size of a business card. It's written on, on front and back, which means it was from a codex, which means it was from a book. It wasn't from a scroll. And Christians have always preferred books over, over scrolls. Um, most scholars place it to within under less than 100 years from when John would have originally written the Gospel of John. When it comes to ancient writings, we don't have the originals because there's only one of them. And it was used, people would make copies and they would pass it around circulating and eventually it would be destroyed, it would be lost, um, something it would fall apart. So what you have are copies later. Well, when it comes to the New Testament, our earliest copies within 100 years. Compare that to Homer with a 500-year gap. Not only that, we, not only do we have P52, we have thousands of Greek manuscripts from antiquity, from ancient Greek manuscripts, about 5,500. That number used to be higher. Um, people used to say 5,800, but we've been able to see that some sections we counted twice are actually related together. They're from the same document. So we've lowered the number down to better account for that. So we have about 5,500 ancient Greek copies compared to Homer's 1,000. Third, we have the New Testament translated into other languages really early on. In fact, there's a book there by Bruce Metzger. It's called The Early Versions of the New Testament. He published it with Oxford University, was a leading scholar um, at Princeton University. A little bit of overview. We have well over 20,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in Greek and other languages. I'm giving conservative numbers here, too. I'm rounding down. Earliest New Testament fragment from within the 100 years of the original writing. Arguably, there are about 11 fragments that people make an argument that are within that same time period, within the second century. Compare this with 1,000 ancient copies of Homer's writings with a 500-year gap between the original and the oldest existing fragment. To give that to you visually, it looks like this. That's the literary evidence for the New Testament in terms of manuscripts compared to Homer. And Homer is the best comparison. Um, he stands head and shoulders above everyone else from the ancient period. So I want to talk a little bit for a moment about the Homer gap. Those of you who are laughing need to repent for watching The Simpsons. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> there will be an altar call later and a DVD burning. <laughs> we don't even use DVDs anymore. So here's what I'm going to do real quick. I'm going to take the 500-year gap between when Homer composes poetry and our oldest copy and just ask the question, what was going on with the New Testament in its first 500 years? Well, the first thing you have to recognize, that I, I drew this on PowerPoint, so this is how my students feel in class. They, if you can't read it, that's how they feel too. So you have to recognize the New Testament was completed last by John, probably around 95 or 97 um, AD or CE, whatever um, dating initials you want to use there. By 180, with, within less than 100 years of Revelation being completed, we have evidence of six Christians in Northern Africa on trial for being Christians. At one point in the transcript, the evidence for the trial, which is in Latin because that's what they spoke there at the time, um, one of the Christians was asked what they had in their case. 
and they responded that they had the, the writings of a just man, one Paul. They had Paul's epistles in Latin in 180 in less than 100 years. Bruce Metzger from Princeton argues that if they had Paul's epistles in Latin, it's most likely they had the Gospels as well. The Gospels circulated faster. There are more copies of the Gospels. By the time you get to the 4th century, Augustine is kind of ticked off that there are so many Latin translations. He makes the comment, and I'm paraphrasing him. Augustine says, anyone who has access to the Greek Bible and any capacity in Latin just feels compelled to make a translation. Jerome, if you've heard of the Latin Vulgate, Jerome complained that there were more Latin translations than there were Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. In the first, Metzger points out in the first um, six centuries of the church, there were five or six versions, different versions of the New Testament in Syriac. In 360, there's a story and evidence of a man named Olaphus who wanted to reach people who spoke the Gothic language, which was not a written language. It was an oral language. They didn't have an alphabet. So guess what he did? He created an alphabet for them. And then he translated the Bible into his alphabet for the Goth people, for the Gothic people. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> All right, this is my last point, and it'll be quick. Finally, I believe in the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the one anticipated by the Old Testament. Jesus said that he had come not to um, get rid of or abolish the law, the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. If Jesus rose from the dead, you should take the Old Testament seriously. If Jesus rose from the dead, you should take the New Testament seriously because he commissioned it. The Old Testament is the book he loved. The New Testament is the book he commissioned. And if he rose from the dead, that changes everything. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and they was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. I'm going to end with a, the earliest artistic depiction of Jesus on the cross. It comes from the second century near Rome. Engraved in stone in a bunker that was thought to have been used by young uh, men, soldiers, is this. On the left is a picture of it. On the right is the contrast, so you can see it a little better. It's an engraving of a naked man hanging on a cross with a donkey's head. Inscribed in Greek are these words, Alexamenos, the man who's standing there with hand lifted towards the, the man on the cross. Alexamenos worships his God. In an adjacent room, they found in another hand written in Latin, Alexamenos Fidelas. Alexamenos was faithful. This symbol of vulgarity used to mock a man who is a follower of Jesus, used even in, in other historical references as a curse word, um, in the most vulgar way you can imagine people would use the term crucify in literature or engravings we have from this time period. Today we have it displayed in an artistic way here on the wall 
What could turn this symbol of a curse and vulgarity into a symbol of hope for millions and millions, if not the risen Son of God? And if Jesus rose from the dead, you should take what he said seriously. You could trust these ancient words written in different languages thousands of years ago because they're the very words of God. Where else will we go? He alone has the words of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you because you have condescended to us. You've stooped down and humbled yourself to communicate to us. You didn't have to, but you did. You don't have to love us, but you did. You didn't have to die for us, but you did. Lord, we're so thankful that Jesus, who was raised on the third day, invites us and bids us all to come to him. If there's someone here who's never had a life-transforming encounter with your son, with your gospel, with your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would demonstrate the gospel to be the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.